You're listening to the Tipsy Nerds Book Club Podcast, your home for the best of science fiction and fantasy with a twist. Whether you prefer your stories with dragons or aliens, your beverages shaken or stirred, fill your glass, relax, and join the conversation with your hosts, sci-fi and fantasy authors and proud tipsy nerds, Natalie Wright and R.S. Dabney. This episode of the Tipsy Nerds Book Club Podcast is supported in part by a new novel by P.L. Tavermina, Arrowvoyant, an exciting new sci-fi novel about a girl that can see carbon emissions and the oil industry's attempt to stop her. Available now on Amazon, affiliate links available on our website. Welcome tipsy nerds, book lovers, grog drinkers to the Tipsy Nerds Book Club podcast. I am Natalie Wright, one of your hosts, along with my co-host, the ever-endearing Robin Dabney. Hi, Natalie. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing really well. We're on the road, Robin and I. We're in charming Flagstaff. We are. So this is one of those fun episodes that we're actually recording together, which we absolutely love. And we also have a really wonderful guest tonight, um, author J. Todd Scott. He is the author of the Far Empty, um, the Big Ben series, Todd. What is it called? Yeah, yeah, the Big Ben series or or the Chris Cherry trilogy or, you know, any any of that works. Okay, and he writes books that are like... um, like modern Western noir. It's a really cool series. It's amazing. I live down in the Big Bend area, so I really love them. He's also a DEA agent. Um, He's now doing some work in Hollywood. He's got a really cool background, a law degree. So we are really excited to have him here today. So thank you for joining us. Can we call you Todd for this episode or Uh, do you want to? No, absolutely. Todd works for Great. Well, welcome, Todd. Thank you. Yes. And so we also, Todd and I met at um, in El Paso, we were both writers and we met at a meeting at the El Paso Writers League. And so we've stayed in touch. And I, when I, we started this show, um, he often put some wonderful photos of whiskey on his Instagram. So I was like, <laughs> you would be a great person to be on the Tipsy Nerds. And he kindly agreed to come on. So. Yeah. Yes. So Any, welcome. Yeah. Thank you. Anything involving books and drinking, I'm, I'm a big fan of. So. Yeah. Same. <laughs> it's so. <laughs> Yeah. And also, uh, yeah, I, I follow your stuff too, because I am a whiskey drinker and a law school graduate. So, you know, yeah, but I've escaped. The, yeah. The only, the only significant law I practiced is uh, my divorce. And I discovered that I'm not a, a very good divorce lawyer, to be really honest. Um, so, <laughs> well, Natalie uh, is. So. <laughs> it's perfect. It's come full circle. Shh, don't tell anyone that. I don't. I don't want to be dragged back into that. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so okay. So there we are. And and we asked Todd to pick the book that he wanted to talk about. So it's fun. Where um, he picked a book called The Black Company. which is not one that either of us had read before. No, or heard of, and it's not on the list, but it should be maybe. It's it's an arguable one for it. It was uh, written in 1984 by Glenn Cook. And Todd, if you would kind of introduce the book for people, um, first kind of do the setup, what is it about? And then tell people and us why you picked this book. Well, I I mean, basically the book is kind of uh, noir fantasy, right? Or grim, dark fantasy, I guess is the word that's that's been used now. And it is, it kind of came out at the time that, you know, Robert Jordan and Terry Brooks and and, and David Eddings, a lot of that kind of uh, heroic fantasy was was extremely popular. And and the Black Company kind of 
presaged a little bit, I think, the Gerard Martin's song of ice and fire. Um, but what I found fascinating about the Black Company, which is really just a book about mercenaries, it's a series of books about mercenaries, hence the name The Black Company. And it kind of has a, a Conanish quality in the sense that, it, you know, the, the cultures are not very well described. The world is kind of uh, mysterious and amorphous, and every all the action revolves around these group of mercenaries with fantastic names like Croker and uh, you know One Eye, and, and they all just kind of have these names. And it, it when I read it, you know, back when I was younger, I was just fascinated by this kind of bare bones narration, this gritty uh, fantasy epic where everything was gray. There wasn't a lot of black and white. Uh, it dealt a lot with this idea of honor and, and, and whether, you know, what it takes to be a good person in a world that's fundamentally dark. And, and it's just kind of this series of interlocking stories uh, about mercenaries traversing a, a very, um, you know, dangerous, dark world. And it was just a type of fantasy I hadn't read before. And, and you know, in, in many ways now, it's kind of trite. I mean, if you've read Joe Abercrombie, if you've read a lot of these authors, you know, that stuff is is gotten quite popular but back then it really felt uh when it first came out like a breath of, of fresh air yeah it i can see uh, where it i'm a big wheel of time fan and also uh song of ice and fire so i could definitely see where this probably was an influence on george r r martin in terms of the the conversation about um, the moral ambiguity aspect. Oh, yeah. um, and you pulled out a lot of the things that we were wanting to discuss in that opening, yeah, you know, because yeah. a lot of the things we were noticing was, well, the world building is kind of light in places. And, you know, there's times when it's bare bones and it moves so quickly, you sometimes get lost, but it was done in a unique way. And so it's interesting that some of those things were the things that actually drew you into the story. Yeah. And it, it's, you know, if you think about your typical fantasy epics, you know, fantasy as a genre, right. And I've sometimes been, it's uh, been joked that I kind of write the fantasy version of Westerns because my Western books have a lot of fantasy touchstones. They're big, you know, they're long books. They, they deal a lot with um, you know, the kind of terrain and the area, you know, a lot of description and stuff like that, which you get kind of used to, I think, in fantasy novels. Um, you know, it, it, pretty much every fantasy novel you read nowadays, and they're really not novels anymore. They're all trilogies or more, right? Uh, um, that's kind of right. that's kind of your buy-in if you're picking up a fantasy novel now. Um, they start with a big map, you know, a very uh, detailed, usually, map of the world. Uh, and the geography is very important to kind of what's going on in, in the landscape and the cultures. And none of that's present in, in the Black Company. I mean, you can kind of get a sense of where things are and where they're traveling to. And if you read several of the stories, you know, you can't, it comes back to certain regions and areas. So you, you get kind of a blank canvas a lot about the world and have to fill it in as you go. And, and the narration is spare. There's not a lot of description about things, but but he, he has a very unique way of kind of describing things or writing about battles and stuff like that, that it's it's highly descriptive with uh, a lot of economy. And um, I'm not economical at all when I write. And, uh, you know, but I do really kind of enjoy his uh, kind of cinematic, simple narration. And the stories move and the characters are fascinating. And like I said, they all have kind of unique nickname, Goblin or, or whatnot. And they're not very heroic but you find yourself rooting for them 
all the same. So, yeah, that was, I liked the characters an awful lot. Some of my favorite scenes were, it's very military fantasy. Uh, Robin and I, for the show, have been reading a lot of military sci-fi, it seems likely lately. And so I, I found the comparison between this maybe say, and, um, uh, Starship Trooper that we read recently, where that was, you know, like space paratroopers. This is more of a medieval fantasy uh, military fiction. Yeah. It really centers around the, you know, the battles and the fights. But the scenes I really liked were the guys are sitting there playing cards. And uh, I think it was what one eye is always cheating. Yes. But then when Raven's playing, because everyone's a little bit afraid of Raven because <laughs> they're not quite sure what he's going to do. He doesn't cheat. And just the, the camaraderie of the fellas when in, in the whole thing and that they're a big family. Yes. And that he's really, the main character is clear that they are morally ambiguous <laughs> human beings. He's basically saying, we're not heroic. Mm-hmm. We're not really... We're paid right. to kill people, you know, right. so. And actually, our, you know, your main character is, you know, uh, Croker is not really a, a warrior. I mean, he's kind of the, he's a doctor, I guess, a medic, yeah. a version of a medic, uh, the, the uh, kind of recorder of everything that goes on. And he's really the least heroic of any of them. And they actually, I, I think, get on him at times when he tries to get in fights because they need him to keep other fighters alive. And, and I've, you know, I've read or you know, heard anecdotally that, that these books have been very popular, were very popular at times with the military or U.S. military, uh, because soldiers could read them and found a lot of similarities between, you know, this kind of small group mercenary uh, and their own units. And, you know, I think a lot of the talk back and forth, uh, like you said, the card games, the kind of shorthand language that these guys use with each other and actually women too. I, you know, one of the other interesting things about this from a fantasy perspective, and, and you don't see it, I think as much in this book as you do in the others is that the female characters are very well represented and um, you know, they have a lot of agency. They're very important to what goes on. And there's not a lot of um, difference between, you know, your, your women fighters and your men fighters in, in, in these books. And again, I think that was kind of unusual at the time. And as a father of three daughters, I know one of the things I try very hard in my own books is to not make the female characters simply props or, or plot. Secretaries and prostitutes. Secretaries and prostitutes. You know, they're not uh, all damsels in, in distress. That doesn't mean they're all heroic either, but you do try to give them their own arcs and so uh, their own lives. So they're not just adjacent to the action they're part of the action i think one of the things i I found refreshing about this book actually was some of the you know you're talking about how it was bare bones and all of that in certain ways and we read in this genre so many tomes that are wonderful but it sort of is nice to have a really plot driven and and good characters too good character development but you know where you're not spending a hundred thousand words just you know describing the shrubs which i do love as well but (laughs) you know this this read a lot to me it had a a feel similar to uh the name of the wind by patrick rothfuss yes but trimmed down and so For me, a lot of the name of the wind is, you know, a great beloved story, but it can be verbose at times. And so this was, I think people who like the name of the wind would like this and it's quicker paced, which I found refreshing. (laughs) Yeah, and 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 I'm a huge fantasy fan. I've always been. If you had asked me, um, you know, back in college, I guess, high school, college, when I, you know, was really writing seriously, 
then, you know, I would have said I would have been a fantasy writer or, or a horror writer, science fiction writer. That's really the, the genres that I gravitated to. And, and, you know, I read those massive books, the Tad Williams books and, and uh, you know, obviously later the, the George R. R. Martin books. Um, uh, I've tried the Steven Erickson books in, in, in later years. So, you know, I'm fine sitting down with a 700 page fantasy novel. You know what you're pricing yourself into. I mean, you, you know what you're getting. Um, but these are, uh, you know, different in, in so many ways, but in a lot of good ways. And, um, you know, I found, I guess, as I've gotten older, even though my books are pretty long, uh, it's a little tougher for me to want to dive into 700 pages of something. And if it doesn't grab me early, I have a tendency to bail on it in, in a way that I might not have, you know, when I was 19 or 20 years old. Yeah, I can relate to that. And I think one thing I would say to our listeners, if you uh, are interested in a black company, and definitely if you're a fantasy fan, you should tr- give it a try. But you're, it, it may not make a lot of sense at the beginning. Um, Robin and I both found, because he doesn't do a lot of world-building long description like you might have in some fantasy, it's a little disorienting at the beginning of the story. But you just kind of have to Trust us that if you <laughs> stick with stick with it and go for deeper, it will all begin to make sense. But he doesn't, you know, he doesn't waste a lot of time. There's not like some, you know, 40 page prologue here that does all the setup for you or something like that, where it, he he lands you right in the midst of the action. Right. And, 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 yeah. And, and because he doesn't really, you know, the characters initially are just kind of these nicknames. Uh, right. And so you know, they kind of blend together right off and you're not quite sure who's doing what and who's running things and why the hell they're even doing what they're doing. But, you know, like you said, if you stick with it a little bit, then it kind of makes sense. In the, in the first book, The Black Company, you know, it's, it's kind of these connected stories. They're, they're self-contained in many respects. You know, each chapter is really kind of a story in and of itself. And then they link yeah. together as you kind of follow this company through, through a, a, a series of events. And I just thought, given all the books that you guys were looking at and stuff that was on your list, you know, I kind of wanted to tackle something that was a little unique and um, something that, I, that people didn't know, right? That, that yeah. a lot, lot, a lot of people had had exposure to. This is one of these books that, you know, has kind of been surpassed by uh, some of these modern writers that we've talked about, but they're still out there. Uh, you can find them. Uh, you know, they're, they're popular with those people who, who stuck with them. And, you know, some people like their fantasy, you know, Tolkien and some people like Joe Abercrombie, you know, just like some people like Star Trek and other people like Blade Runner. And I tend to be the Blade Runner black company more than the, uh, Star Trek Tolkien. And one of the things I was going to say that, that follows that nicely is that, yeah, this is a lesser known series and there are nine books in the series. So if you are one of our listeners and you like the wheel of time, you like the, the King killer chronicles, you like some of these bigger epic fantasy stories and you're looking for something else because you've read everything and you're waiting for Pat to write his next book. This is definitely one to check out. It follows, you know, it has all of that stuff that you love and you're looking for. There's nine books. I think it would also appeal to people who not only like epic and dark fantasy, but who also like those military sci-fi books. If you've read Ender's Game and you've read Starship Troopers, even though that's different, that's very hardcore science fiction, this has enough of that military vibe that I think this could appeal to both sides of that genre um, or those genres. I 
in a yeah. lot of ways. Yeah, if, and I think if you like some of the stuff that Cameron Hurley is doing, for instance, like the Light Brigade and stuff, which most, you know, that has that kind of military sci-fi feel. This is kind of a fantasy fantasy version of that. So it's definitely, you know, you can pick up the, you know, these the mass market paperbacks of the Black Company for, you know, eight or nine bucks. And I think it's uh, nowadays, I think that's a great investment to try a writer who's really good at what he does. It may not be for everyone, but but they are extremely well written. And, and, you know, they've got great characters and great plot and, you know, some mystery and magic and all that sort of stuff. So um, they're just, you know, they're just great to read. Some good black humor. What was that yes. quote, Natalie? The- oh, there was this, this one point where I was laughing out loud. It was something like, he was down so low, he was bumping the ass of a snake or something <laughs> like that. Just, he has these one-liners that, you know, I would be like, what? And I really had to go back and read it again. Like, that's pretty funny. You yeah. know, his his description, yeah, it's, it's not like a page of description. It might be just a couple sentences, but sometimes really eloquent, really beautiful. Yeah. Very um, evocative, and I really appreciated oh, yes. that too. Yes, inspirational. Robin, we didn't talk about what we're drinking. You yeah, want to tell oh, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, Natalie and I rolled into Flagstaff and started drinking immediately. And yeah. when I do that, I forget to introduce the drink. So I'm going to back up. Um, we are drinking something called Croker's Grog. Um, Grog seemed an appropriate drink for a military fantasy kind of story. Croker is the main character. He's the phys- physician historian. Um, and what is in this? So uh, similar to the typical grog, you're going to find um, recipes for online. This one has two ounces of dark rum. It's got uh, fresh lime juice, some brown sugar, hot water. If you want to get fancy, which these gents would not have, you can also add a slice of orange and a cinnamon stick. I'll probably leave that out of the photo because it doesn't match the book. But if you want something <laughs> warm and fuzzy for the winter, yeah. you know, that's a good a good one for it. So Croker's Grog. Yes, very yeah. sad, very good. Yeah, I like to use Kraken dark rum. Yeah. Oh, yes. I like Kraken too. Yeah. They don't sponsor us, but we like them. Yeah, <laughs> they should sponsor us. <laughs> if we had sponsors for all the different boozes that we drank, we'd, we'd probably be... We could quit writing. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> okay, so this is... Yeah, we, I would recommend this book. Yeah, I would, de- I would definitely too. And I think it's a great... It's shorter... Which I really like the fact that it uh, we read a lot of really long books for the show. Yeah. So it was nice to have something that uh, sped by a little bit more quickly. Yeah. And also, if you are into audiobooks, I switch back and forth between audio and paperback usually for the show. And I thought the audiobook was really well done. And he has all these great voices. He does. He has one characters. voice that sounds exactly like Christopher Lee as Saruman. <laughs> and I was just like, I couldn't, I was like in love with this voice of pseudo Saruman. <laughs> so yeah. If, if you're like desperate for some more Saruman in your life, listen to the audio. Maybe that's just me. Um, so, okay. So besides, so the black company, good book, you should read it. You also Todd, as a, you're, you're a writer, we've said that, but you're, mm-hmm. you've got some other cool projects that might interest some of our listeners. You write these Westerns, but you also dabble in the science fiction fantasy genre. Yeah, yeah well, tell us about I, what you can. <laughs> yeah, well, I was very fortunate. My first book, Far Empty, came out. Like a lot of these things, it got optioned, and it's now in development hell at uh, Stars. Actually, is where it's at. And but when you go through that process and it gets optioned, and you're working with a production team, uh, I was lucky to to get to meet uh, some directors and actors and producers and all these people. You know, all who kind of had their hands. Uh, on the project at one time and your book is being sent around, you know, your book is being 
uh, read by a lot of people. And that kind of opened up some opportunities for me to kind of get some other writing things. So one of the actual initial things I did, I was asked to pitch an original audio series, kind of in the vein of like Lion Town or Homecoming, you know, that actually became a, a TV series, I think on Amazon or something. So I was asked to, to pitch a series and that was a real high tech concept thriller that I pitched. And uh, that got sold. And again, I, you know, a lot of these things in Hollywood, you never know if they're going to make them or not, but you get paid to, to do them. So from that, I kind of learned to start writing scripts and things. And some of the uh, individuals that I met in the early days of The Far Empty got involved in writing a big uh, science fiction movie uh, for uh, 20th Century Fox, which you know now is part of Disney. And they wanted another uh, guy to take a crack at the screenplay to, to, to be a co-writer on it. So they asked me if I might be interested, and I kind of put a 30-page Bible together of, you know, if, if I was going to write this story, this is how I'd approach it. And they're like, yeah, that's great. We want you to do that. And um, so I came in and wrote, you know, what would be basically a $100 million science fiction movie, wow. right? And, um, you know, so one of the first things they said was, yeah, we got, we got to trim, you know, 15 or 20 million off this. But, you know, it was a fascinating process and it was a big, it's, it's a big kind of uh, post-apocalyptic movie. It involves, you know, climate and climate change and, and, you know, it's kind of Mad Max without the, the mad part of it. Just Max. Just Max, right. You know, <laughs> uh, and, but it was a fascinating thing and it was not, like any of my books. And uh, I really kind of had to sit down and figure out how to write a screenplay by final draft, which is what, you know, pretty much most people use and get a bunch of scripts. And one of the nice things is once I got involved in this, then people would send me scripts, early scripts, uh, you know, scripts that are still being written or in development and found that I enjoyed it. You know, it's, it's very different than writing novels, but you know, it's a big, huge science fiction movie that I wrote or co-wrote and, you know, again, whether it ever gets made or not, I, you know, who knows, but, you know, it's made in that credit from writing that, that movie, I, I, that was enough, um, you know, screenwriting credit to get into the WGA, the Writers Guild of America. So now I'm part of the Writers Guild and a great thing of being part of that is here at, um, you know, Oscar season, I guess I, I'm getting all the, the CDs sipped to me of all the current movies and their screenplays. Because I guess we get to vote for, you know, the the best screenplay or, or something. Yeah. So every time I show up uh, at home at night, you know, I've got 10 movies of the most recent movies and then copies of the screenplays. It's kind of all being part of the guild. And then once you're part of the guild, that kind of opens you up to get to, to, to meet other people who uh, give you other assignments. So I was able to... to take that movie and I'm working on that. And um, I had an unpublished book sitting around, which was kind of a, a horror novel to some extent. And that got optioned, even though the book itself uh, hadn't sold. And I was uh, brought on to adapt that. So I've written the pilot for that. That would be about a 10 episode uh, series. And uh, I get to be, I have an executive producer credit on that. Um, so the pilot made its rounds. That's been picked up by another production company, and it's now out to talent. One thing you learn in Hollywood is that you're the writer, but you're not considered the talent. The talent is really um, the actors and directors. Uh, so to get these um, projects in front of a, a camera, uh, to get picked up by HBO and Showtime or Cinemax or uh, you know Netflix, 
uh, you have to put a package together, which involves a script, a production company, um, and a talent, which is some combination of, of actor and, and director who've committed, attached, the word is attached, they've attached themselves uh, to your project. And so we're out at, a, at uh, uh, an actor right now, a very great actor, um, to attach themselves uh, for this pilot. And then once that's done, we'll be headed out to Netflix and those places and see if they want to want to buy the series. Um, and then I was able to parlay that into to another screenplay for a, a, a horror film that I, I just uh, turned in and submitted. And I have another, uh, yeah, I, I'm working on another uh, movie uh, via a, a crime, crime movie. And I'm co-writing that one. So all of these projects kind of come up uh, because you, you know, do a good job on something else. And, and then a guy makes a call and then your agent gets a call from someone and you just kind of uh, move ahead. And it, so it, it's interesting. This last year, I've probably done more of that work than actually novel writing. I have my next novel coming out uh, in June of next year. But I spent a lot of this uh, last year uh, writing screenplays. It's fascinating. And and we're really rooting for you to hope yes. that at least if, you know, some of these, because we, we were talking to Hugh Howey um, mm-hmm. earlier this year who had wool optioned. Wool. And, right. you know, we, we talked with him about that option hell situation, the limbo of, of how long that can take. And it's really, it's fascinating process, but I don't think a lot of people realize how many writers have things optioned and then they never see the light of day. And I'm like stumped as to why that happens. But then when we have things like Sharknado, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, why do we, I mean, not to, not to diss Sharknado because, you know, hey. Or like the 87th remake of the same movie. Right. Yeah, well, it's like, why, yeah. why do we have that? And when we don't have, you know, there's all this great talent out there yes. and people are optioning all these wonderful things and then they're not made. And it's just like, it's mind boggling. Well, it also is fascinating that you write in so many genres. Yeah, that's fascinating too. Yeah. Competently, not just competently, well, but apparently yeah. well <laughs> in all of these genres. Yeah. Right. Well, what you find in Hollywood is IP is the big word, right? Intellectual property. So something that has sold before they believe can sell again. It's trying to get new property, new intellectual property off the off the launch pad that can be a little tough. And a lot of times it's who wants to do your your stuff? So if you have a, a tier one actor who suddenly for some reason likes what you're doing, well, that's likely to get made. If Chris Pratt decides he wants to be Chris Cherry, you know, am I, that's the main Can character. Can you tell us? Yes, we, we are rooting for that. We are rooting <laughs> for that. I can tell you that I can tell you that we have an actor uh, a fantastic actor who's attached to be Chris Cherry. For oh, I can't wait. And I, these are, again, we're talking sci-fi fantasy, but to any of our listeners, if you want to dabble into something slightly different, his his books on the Big Bend of Texas, his Chris Cherry series, are really fabulously written. And his descriptions, I live down there, so I can vouch for this, are accurate. You can picture yourself there. They're very well written. So if you're looking to read something else, please check these out. We will have links on our website. Yes, yeah. And on the first, the homepage of our website, we have prominent links on the right-hand side where you can find out more about J. Todd Scott and his books and keep up with him. And uh, I don't know if we've ever said this before, but definitely if you're interested in an author, follow them on Amazon because then you will get the information from Amazon whenever they have a new thing releasing. And so I'm fascinated too, Todd, about how your work 
as a federal agent, does your day job influence your other day job? You know, your, um, and then how do you balance the two? Well, yeah, so two part question. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It, it's yeah, obviously the, the federal agent stuff, uh, you know, was deeply influenced the, the crime novels that, that I did. And, you know, not that they're about my career or me directly, but if you're writing about the crime, if you're writing about crime, if you're writing about the border, uh, which, you know, my books involve, uh, there's no way that my career couldn't bleed in into that. Let's put it this way. I didn't have to do a lot of research for any of those books. So, and, and obviously, you know, your marketing and publicity people at your publisher love that because they can say that you're, you know, you're an expert writing about, uh, writing about what you know. But what's been interesting on the, on the other projects is that people are just kind of fascinated by what I do. So it ends up being kind of a conversation piece. Um, you know, even in Hollywood, they're kind of fascinated that there's, here's a guy who's, you know, goes every day and wears a badge and gun and kicks in boards and, and does all this stuff and um, then finds time to, to kind of write. So, you know, they're, they're fascinated by that. And, you know, they enjoy kind of just picking my brain, even if it's not something I'm particularly working on with them at that moment, just about what I do and how I do it and, and the places I've been and, and the places that I've worked. So, it, you know, it never hurts. You know, the problem is, is that I kind of have backed myself into a corner where you're talking about how I balance doing the work. You know, I've kind of hit a limit to, to what I can do. I, I've discovered there are only so many hours in the day and um, I do have to sleep in them, you know, a few of them. And I, I work a lot, you know, I'm, I'm not on the street anymore doing undercover, which I used to do. I've got a lot of young agents who are out doing that, but I'm still putting in, you know, 10 to 12 hour days easily. And, um, you know, I'm here in Houston, so I'm in a huge city and have a lot of responsibilities here. But, you know, I can't, there's stuff I've had to turn down that I've kind of been offered uh, to work on uh, simply because I just don't have have the time. And, um you know, I get up real early in the morning and this is the part where you, I talk about, right, how I write. And, you know, I preface it by saying this is what works for me. I in no way suggest this is how anyone else should do it. And I, and I think Robin can attest that the, the first part of learning how to be a writer is learning how how you get the work done. And that's different for, for everyone. Um, but for me, it's I get up real early before I go into the office and I try to knock out a couple hours every morning. I write. 365 days a year. Uh, I don't take a day off, but I'm on deadlines and contracts now. So I, so I really can't. And like I said, I try to get at least 600 words done Monday through Friday and about 2000 on Saturdays and Sundays and uh, just get them done before work. And then maybe at night I'll, you know, revise or, or, or reread some stuff that I've done. But all that principal writing gets done uh, in the morning and I write every day and I just treat it like another job, a fun job. But that's how I approach it. And that's that's what works for me. And but there's a lot of writers who, who have whole different paradigms. And, um, you know, I, I never want anyone to for anyone to think I'm telling them if they want to be a writer, they have to do what I do. But that's just how I have to get have to get the work done. This is probably why you've been able to be more successful, because like for me, it's as easy as someone being like, we should go ride mountain bikes. And I'm like, cool, I won't work for three weeks so I can go ride mountain bikes and hike. Like, <laughs> or, or, or a new game came out for Xbox yeah. and I'm, you know, I'm, or yeah, like, I don't know, I'm going to rewatch 
you know, Dr. Strange for like the 10th time because I just want to see Benedict Cumberbatch for a while. So so you have like, you are a a good example of a success story because you came out of the slush pile, correct? Uh, Yeah, no, I, I absolutely did. And for those of you who don't know what that is, the slush pile is writers, new writers. Basically, you have to query, which is sending a letter to an agent selling yourself. And you have to get an agent to get an editor. And it's very hard to be found out of the slush pile. And so you are a great um, success story for that, for, for you know, to inspire other writers. Um, do you have a piece of advice? Is there one thing that you kind of think of as your kernel of to, to, to tell people who are trying to make it, trying to get an agent, trying to become J. Todd Scott in the industry? Like, what would you tell them? Um, yeah, I mean, there's a cliche things, you know, you know, don't give up, uh, keep at it, write what you love. I mean, there, there are those things, but I, Stop I think watching Dr. Strange, <laughs> uh, your 10th episode of, of that or 10th viewing of it, you know, I, I had an advantage, Robin, in that I didn't really know what I didn't know, right? So I didn't write for many, for about 20 years, and then kind of decided I wanted to take a stab at it again. And so I just sat down and started writing, and I did it without paying attention to the publishing business or how to get published or age. Like, I didn't start with any of that. I just started with I really wanted to write again. Like, I just wanted to sit down and tell tell stories. And that's what I did. So I sat down and started typing, 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 typing. And it was only after I had some stuff done that I actually looked up from the computer and said, well, I don't know, maybe this stuff isn't so bad. If I wanted to publish it, what would I do with it? Right. So I, I wrote what I wanted to and what interested me without any real feeling of somebody looking over my shoulder as I did it. And then um, literally looked on the Internet how to query an agent. You know, I Googled that. And then, you know, how to write a query letter. I used all those resources that others do, you know, that you have probably Writer's Digest and, and Agent Query Connect and all the websites, you know, and and then just started, you know, sending in the query letters and crossing my fingers. And, you know, and, and I got lucky. And, and, and that's always part of it, too, because there's a lot of great writers out there where timing and luck don't all conspire to happen at the same time. And, and so there's some luck. So. I think the best advice I can have, I can give is just do the work, right? I mean, just, just write and then understand that all the rest of that is to some extent out of your control. So you write the best stuff you can, you write the best query letters that you can, you try to, you know, have a decent platform. I guess that matters nowadays, you know, try to be a decent person on Twitter and Instagram, you know, don't be don't be a prick, I guess. Uh, and, and just do the, the best credible work that you can. Be credible, be believable, be yourself, you know, write stuff that you enjoy and understand that all the rest of that's out of your control. And, and that's even important, more important, I think, now that I'm a, you know, the, the best authors are the debut authors and the, and the uh, bestseller authors, right? That's the best time to be an author. It's a debut. Everyone thinks you're a genius. Uh, everyone loves your stuff. Because you don't have a sales record and you're going to be the next uh, Stephen King or, or you know whoever. And then as a bestseller, everyone loves you because you're making everybody a ton of money. But when you're kind of a, a guy like me, who's, you know, soon to be four books into this, you know, you're kind of in the middle of the pack. You're not you're not a debut anymore. You know, I'm not a bestseller. And so you, you even understand more pointedly that how much is out of your control. 
And so, um, you know, you just continue to put your nose to the grindstone and, and write the best books you can and, and throw them out there and, and hope that enough people like them that somebody will let you write another book. And, and so far that's, that's work for me, but kind of approaching it with that kind of, I don't know, cynical is the right word, but understanding demeanor of what the business is. Cause there's a difference between being a writer and the business side of being a, a published professional author. And, and those two things sometimes meet, but, you know, not always. Well, there are two things you've said that I think pretty much all the authors we've talked to say this. And one of it is I, most of the authors we've talked to that have had success that get published, that have bestsellers, that do well, that keep getting projects, do write nearly every day. It is not something where they, you know, take a year off or six months off. They write consistently. Or write once a week. Or- right. They really are writing as part of their daily routine, their, or their daily life. And the other is that it sounds like you probably had multiple projects you had written like you'd written several stories or novels before you even began to think about submitting them. Is that? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I had two full novels written at the time I started querying. So I had stuff, I had stuff in the can and then I was always writing the next thing. And, and even right. now, if I finish a book on Friday, Saturday morning, I'm starting the next book. If I finish a screenplay that I have due on Tuesday, on Wednesday, I'm moving to the next one. And you know, I'm actually, I'm old enough. I, you know, I'm eligible to retire from, from DEA. I could retire tomorrow if I wanted to. And I, I've done well enough that I, you know, I could retire and probably just write full time, but I write full time anyway now and pretty much. And yeah. I have the, cause people always ask me why I just don't quit and, 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 and just do nothing but write. But I, one of the things I've discovered talking to a lot of authors and, and, you know, who do this professionally is, you know, I have the advantage of a job that I still love, a career that I still love, that I'm still pretty good at. And DEA is not looking to throw me out the door tomorrow. So I, you know, writing is, is fun for me. It's a lot of work, but it's fun. I get to choose the things I want to write. I don't, writing doesn't keep the lights on for me. Um, it, so I don't have the added pressure when I write. You know, I don't sit down and think, oh my God, if this book doesn't work or, you know, this screenplay doesn't sell, then, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, back trying to find a job. I have a job, I have a career. So that makes me uh, only do the things I want to do and write work that I like to write and tell the stories I want to tell. And if it all ended tomorrow, well, I had a hell of a run and uh, I got to do these cool podcasts and drink while doing the podcast and, Cheers. You know, and, I, yeah, and I can go into a library and see my books and, and, you know, and, and so I, I don't treat, I don't take it. I guess the best thing I can say is I don't take any of it for granted. And, uh, I love it that I'm doing, that I get to do it. And if it all ended tomorrow, well, I, you know, I, I got great stories to tell. Um, so it, it's been, it's been a great ride so far and I still can't believe you know, when I get to talk to a certain actor or a director, or I get emails from people about my books from all over the world. And in each email, I answer every whoever writes, no matter what they tell me. And I, I'm always surprised when people actually sit down to go to a lot of effort to tell me they hate something I've written. But, they, you know, that happens. <laughs> <laughs> right? But I answer everybody. Uh, Haters seem to have a lot of time on their hands. They do. And they're very, very specific in what they hate and how much they hate it. 
Um, but, <laughs> well, tell us what's something in one of your stories that somebody hated on. I, I have been kind of attacked about language uh, a few times. People found the language uh, off-putting and uh, people... You mean like foul language? Yeah, or like, yeah, cursing and things like that. Oh, know, really? I don't know. Yeah. What the people are talking about? <laughs> I, don't know. I, mean, I mean, get over the shit, man. And it's like, what the goddamn fuck is How going are you going to read a border western and be like... This is too offensive. Right? No, but I, you know, I've, I've got, I've gotten that. And, um, yeah, and, and long, you know, the books are long and, you know, they're boring, I, you know, because my books are long. <laughs> so, but, I love that you can just like, I don't know. I, I think, no, it's good when an author, a writer can just, like what I always say to people, if they get all upset about a bad review is like, if you don't get any bad reviews then not enough people have read your book, it's almost like a rite of passage when you get someone, um, I had someone on Goodreads and who's only their favorite uh, author was uh, Joseph Conrad and they gave a bad, and all of the books were like those literary fiction books and they'd never read any young adult fiction except for mine. Mm -hmm. And then we're dogging the way my characters were. It was like, Okay, but hey, they read my book. Right. It's like, yay. It's kind of a, not <laughs> someone, who, right, someone who's not my family and read my you, book. Don't yeah. you wonder, you know, it's like this person really didn't like it, but they obviously something called to them to right. write to you. So it's, right. it's, it's kind of like, do they hate it? Or is it like, I don't know. It's an interesting thing. What right. makes someone write a letter about what they didn't like? Yeah, yeah. and it, yeah, and you know, my attitude is, hey, man, you bought the book, so you get you exactly. Got, so <laughs> yeah. you know, I I still win. I guess you bought it, and if you if you hate it, that's okay. It's your it's your prerogative. I will say this though, I I I I I have a good attitude about it now, but I'll tell a short short story here when the when the far empty was due to come out, and I you know I didn't write for a long time and then started writing and kind of stumbled into this you know suddenly having a, a publisher and, and stuff. And I didn't, and Robin and I talked about this, I, I really hadn't done any, you know, critique groups or writers groups. You know, when I met her up in El Paso, you know, I was, I think I already sold the Far Empty at that point. Yeah, um, it was about, it was like three was, or four months to coming out. Yeah, so I was kind of doing it in reverse. I'm like, holy shit, now I got to sell this, and I got this series of books. Maybe I ought to figure out how to write. Maybe I should have some people, to, you know, show me how to write. Um and when you're, as I was saying, when you're a debut author, everyone says you're great and everyone loves the book. I mean, they're, they're taking a, a gamble on it and they think it's good enough to publish. So I, you know, my parents hadn't read my stuff. No one had read my books other than my agent and publisher. And I got my very first trade review, which comes out, you know, three or four months before the book itself does. And um, it was horrible. The publication, and I'll name it here, Kirkus, uh, they absolutely blasted the Far Empty. And it was so bad that I didn't even think it, it didn't even sound like my book. I mean, you know, I, I, fair criticism I don't have an issue with, but this just seemed kind of unfair. It, I didn't even recognize my own book. But, you know, so I, I was mortified. I, I was like, well, my career is oh, over. And, and, and you're stuck, you know, with that, with that as your only review right off the bat. You know, if you Google Far Empty those first few months, that was the review that came up. And it wasn't a good one. And oh, so, yeah. yeah, and um, so I got kicked in the teeth right out of the gate, and I stopped writing for two weeks. It's the only two weeks I've taken off since I got kind of into this whole writing thing again, because I was like, I'm done. I mean, I suck. It's over. You know, I, was, 
that's like a daily thing for me. I mean, <laughs> and, and so my uh, wonderful editor uh, at Putnam, she sent me a bottle of whiskey. And um, she said, here you are, this federal agent. You've been in fights and shot at and wrecked cars. And you're going to let one bad review get under your skin. She said, you have to toughen up. If you're going to do this <laughs> as a business, you know, you're going to have to toughen up because not everybody's going to like what you do. And so, you know, hey, you know, I'm, I can relate to you because going through law school and then 20 years as a divorce lawyer. I mean, that's some shit right there. You know what I'm saying? I mean, people don't always like what you do. No, they don't. No, they don't. You get hate mail daily from the opposing counsel, sometimes from your own client. You know, you have to deal with angry judges that are pissed off. Maybe it has nothing to do with you and you're on the receiving end of that shit. I put up with that for 20 years. You know, when you're, but when you write and you have someone say something bad about it's What's so essentially personal. like a baby, you know, yeah, it's yeah. like your child. It's complete. So it's so funny that here you are, uh, you know, a federal agent, you know, going through this physical stuff you've gone through. Right. Well, so, yeah. And, and, but, and, but having someone that critique, negatively critique your labor of love is really a whole different kind of thing. Yeah, no, it, it wasn't fun. And I, you know, they asked me, my agent asked, or my editor asked me, she goes, you know, you've got those three daughters. If they got knocked down like this, would you, what would you tell them to do? I'm like, I tell them to give up. I tell them they're failures. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, but, it, but, it, I, you know, having that happen, having that happen right out of the gate uh, was horrible. I, I'm not gonna lie, but, you know, and then, and then the other reviews came in and they were all very good. And then later on that year, Kirkus put out some retrospective of the year and, and then they com- complimented the book. And so, and, and they've actually been very nice to the other ones after High White Side and, and This Side of Night. They were very, very generous too. So, you know, you, you understand that, again, it's just all part of it. Not everybody's going to like what you're doing. And, you know, reviews are not oftentimes for, for the author, they're for readers. And, you know, you just have to kind of stick to your guns and do what you do what you like and and uh, not let that stuff get to you. So I, I, I that I, I hardened my skin, you know, from the beginning. And, right. and now five or six years into this, I'm, I'm pretty blase about it. And then, and then and then honestly, the other part of it is when, if you're going to write for screen, you know, screenplays, you're going to write for Hollywood, you know, you're going to get notes all the time. And, you know, you're going to work on a screenplay and you're going to think it's a great movie. And then uh, a bunch of producers and people uh, are going to get their hands on it and they're going to give you lots of notes and you're going to take lots of phone calls and they're going to tell you, give you very esoteric uh, critiques. Um, And you're going to go back to the drawing board a lot uh, because this is a lot of money on the line and making these movies. And, um, you know, they get they have very specific ideas about what they want and, and they don't want to write it. They want you to write it. That's what they're paying you to do. Uh, so you'll get a note like, well, we need more grief here. Uh, <laughs> right. Right. And that's uh, fascinating. Yeah. And so if you're going to get too take it too personally, then uh, you probably shouldn't do it. I think they called it one of the producers I was working with called it like the compliment sandwich. Right. Like they start off with saying this is really great. But and then they tell you 15 things they want you to change. And at the end, they say, but we're really, really excited to work with you. So that's, right. the comp- that's the compliment sandwich, I guess. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, this is all fascinating stuff. Like it's really inspirational talking to you as, as writers. It's always great to hear from folks who are out there doing the business of writing and 
sticking with it. It's not for the faint of heart, that's for sure. I think, yeah. So it sounds like that's your other bit of advice for aspiring authors is like toughen up. Yeah. <laughs> knuckle, knuckle down and toughen up a little bit. Yeah. And I, and I think don't treat it as so precious, right? Like, like I think one of the things that hamstrung me, you know, many years ago when I was thinking about being a writer is I kind of thought it had to be magical and that like this muse had to come down and, and yeah. it, you know, I, I over-indexed on the creative part of it, but the creativity comes from just the work. And once I got over that mental hump and realized that at the end of the day, it's just putting one word after another, one sentence after another, you know, the creativity occurs, but that only occurs in, in the moment when you're doing the work. And if it's just work, well, I'm not afraid of doing that. And I'm not afraid of writing a whole book and then throwing it in a drawer, you know, because I still told the story that I wanted to tell. So whether somebody wants to publish it or not, I'm quite content to, to spend nine months writing a book and then put it in a drawer and move on to the next book. That's just what you have to be willing to do if you want to be a professional published author. If you want to write and write your 700,000 word opus about, you know, goblins, knock yourself <laughs> out. It's not likely to be published. But that's okay. You've written your 700,000 word, you know, treaties on goblins. But if you want to be a published author, then you're probably going to have to, A, not write a 700,000 word book about goblins. You may have to write something else. And just under, 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 yeah, understand that's the business side of it, you know. So, uh, so maybe it's like the, the sooner you realize or you see yourself as a factory worker and not as a god. Exactly. The easier it is to be successful and happy and content in your job and what you're doing as a writer. Well, yeah. I see it's like losing your virginity. Okay. <laughs> so like, Explain. Okay. So here's the thing. The first book that you write, it's like the first time. Okay. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's, it, and even if it sucks, it's still good. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. Like, because you're going to look back, like you're going to like, Oh, wasn't it great? And yeah. even though it was like in the backseat of a car with your ass, you know, like stuck to vinyl, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's, it's, it's like terrible, but it, you, but you'll think of it with a rosy glow in your, in your memory. Right. And it's well, good. unless and then, it was like, but then like down the road, it gets, it's becomes more like sometimes a work or a chore, <laughs> but it's probably actually better. <laughs> Well, unless, unless it's, <laughs> no, you're doing good. Unless it's like my, unless it was like my first trade review, professional review where I, where, I, where I'd be like, Hey, how was it? Was it good for you? And they were like, nah, not really. Not, not so good at all. Actually. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to think of something comforting to say in this moment, but I don't know how this is the part of the show where Natalie's had one entire glass of wine and I don't, and look, I apologize. I don't want to come across as sounding dreary about the wonderful thing of writing. I don't mean to sound that, that sound that way at all. It's just, I think that it, if you want to do this, you know, you just have to have a certain amount of kind of good humor and perspective about it. And really, you know, I, I was at a, a writing thing recently, VoucherCon, and you sit around with, with writers and, and they kind of you always talk about what we're doing and how things are going. And you understand that really no one knows how to put a career together and we're all just kind of fumble fucking around with it and, and hope <laughs> right. it works out. Um, and so when you understand that and, and understand that how much of it is out of your control, that the only thing you can control is the writing. Well, then that, that takes a lot of burden off of you, I think, right? Because you can, you know, you can sit down and control what's on the four corners of that page. 
And if you just focus on that day in, day out, or, or however you write, then um, then you don't beat yourself up over all the other stuff that you can't control. I can't control how many books sell. I can't control whether it gets reviewed in the New York Times. I can't control whether the movie gets made or any of that sort of stuff. But I sure in the hell can control the words. And um, that's the part that I just grasp onto and focus on and then just try to kind of laugh off uh, everything else, but cash the checks. I always cash the checks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's I want to throw out a really bad sex analogy, but I feel like it's not going to fit here, but at least we're getting paid for your bad sex. <laughs> that is absolutely correct. <laughs> they may hate it, but at least you're still getting paid. Exactly. Yeah. I'm laughing all the way to the bank. So, and they, and they, and they keep coming back for more. So maybe I'm doing something right in there. Somewhere. Right. They're just playing hard to get. Right. <laughs> Well, we have so enjoyed having you on the show and we do hope that you'll come back again. We want to continue to hear about your, you know, your projects and what's yeah. going on and um, we'll have you back uh, hopefully again. Yeah, no, I would absolutely love to. And when, you know, uh, I have high hopes for one of these things I'm working on and if that gets uh, green lit, then I'll be able to come on and actually talk about the behind the scenes, what happens when something gets green lit and you're working in a writer's room and all in the actual one of these actual things is coming together and that'll be fun i think to talk about so yeah oh, we definitely want to hear so about real that. quick before we let you go we have two questions we like to ask all of our all of our authors first what is your favorite sci-fi or fantasy novel or story it can be a film or tv show or whatever of all time and then second what is your favorite go-to drink like anything it can be fancy or it can be Plain and simple. Okay, my favorite uh, sci-fi, you know, book of all time is uh, Neuromancer, hands down. Uh, and now, you know, close to that, Blade Runner is my favorite sci-fi movie of all time. So, Neuromancer was one of the books I would, I, I think I had suggested to, to do here. You did, uh, yes. Right. And somebody else, I think, took it. Um, bastards. And then the um, Tavener, you bastard. <laughs> Look at you, Tavener. Yeah. Right. And my favorite drink is probably uh, a uh, whiskey straight up. And, uh, you know, and I got a lot. Uh, I've got my own whiskey collection. I'm building, a, you know, writers drink a lot, right? So I've got my own uh, whiskey <laughs> collection over here. So uh, a good whiskey straight up sitting on my porch is probably the best drink. I, that I can, that's a go to. What's your favorite whiskey? Uh, actually, right now, I, there's two that I like. Uh, one is called Blade & Bow. Uh, that's really good. And then Corsair Small Batch Triple Smoke. I just bought that the other day. Angel's Envy is another Kentucky whiskey I like. Uh, and then there's several uh, Texas whiskeys that I, you know, am fond of. So, um, so but this uh, Corsair uh, Small Batch Triple Smoke is the one. It's one I'm drinking tonight, and that's uh, kind of the one I've been uh, on the last uh, couple of weeks. Sounds good. Yeah. It's making me want to go drink some bourbon. It's time. <laughs> bourbon time. Scotch. <laughs> well, we really appreciate you coming on. This was a lot of fun. I think, you know, it, the Black Company was a great story. We recommend it to people, but it was also fun to chat with you about writing and your journey and all of that. And I think our listeners will be really interested. So yeah, thank you for coming on. Oh, thank you. It was wonderful. You guys take care. Yeah. You too. And thanks for listening, everyone. Until next time. Cheers. Cheers. This episode of the Tipsy Nerds Book Club podcast is supported in part by a new novel by P.L. Tavermina, Arrow Voyant, an exciting new sci-fi novel 
about a girl that can see carbon emissions and the oil industry's attempt to stop her. Available now on Amazon, affiliate links available on our website. Thank you for listening to the Tipsy Nerds Book Club Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and share the fun with your friends and family. Love what you heard and want the fun to continue? Head over to Patreon and become a patron of the Tipsy Nerds Podcast. We love our patrons. Want a recipe for a cocktail you heard here? You can find recipes as well as show notes, episode transcripts, and helpful links on our website, tipsynerdsbookclub.com. And as always, join us next week for a new episode of Libations and Geeking Out. Cheers.